You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hello and welcome to the Red Center podcast, our second year, start of our third year of doing Red Center with, uh, as always, director extraordinaire, Jason, how are you? I'm very well, Mike. How are you? Good, good. Mr. Wingrove, you Third two or year. so Christ. years ago decided this was a good idea to do a podcast. And uh, and you foolishly said yes. I said yes, and despite I'm along for your, the ride. Despite your better judgment. I thank you for that decision to decide that you didn't have enough on your plate, just directing major <laughs> stuff, and that you would decide to delve into the world of digital cinematography so aggressively. Well, who knew that uh, you know the world would kind of explode the way it has? I think it was a reasonable guess two years ago because um, that obviously was when Red hit uh, in force. But, mm. yeah, it has been really interesting times. And I think uh, not only has that expanded through what we might call the traditional camera suppliers, if you think of it as going up into people like uh, Ari and people, as we discussed last week, but also down into the SLR market with the um, explosion in uh, DSLR stuff. Well, if you go back, whatever, two years, I mean, you'd only just got your Red um, mm-hmm. and there was no... DSLRs that shot anything really. The only things that were on the market were like the Genesis and uh, and the blossoming, and still only the, the really, Viper. really. We were shooting on the Viper back the then. Viper, yeah, and, uh, sure. Well, no, no, that was a good camera. I mean, uh, the I, I will say this: the 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 stuff on um, uh, what was the film that uh, he shot uh, that the killer in San Francisco, um, uh, Zodiac. Zodiac. Yep, I think Zodiac. Viper. Yeah, it does look beautiful. Still stands up today. It does. Exceptionally indeed. good digital cinematography. It's However, gorgeous. as we discovered after that film came out, a lot of that was down to the post-processing film cleanup work. Yeah. Ari uh, technique. And Finch has moved on since then. He's now shooting on MX as we speak. Yes, and that looks pretty good, doesn't it? Actually. Yeah. Well, what's the What's the project again? I've completely it forget. Is, um, it's something like Facebook, but it's not. It's uh, yeah. You know, networking something something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that thing. Yeah. Way to we spring. can IMDb while we talk. But yeah, look, I mean, two years ago, two plus years ago, it was a very a very different landscape that it is now, and just so much is changing. And but I mean, obviously, part of the reason we wanted to start doing and what we thought would really change, and why we thought we'd start by calling it actually Red Center with you know the Epic, which obviously is still yet to come two years later. Well, of course, Red Center also being a nice reference to our locale. Yes, indeed. Um, which obviously the accents were also a bit of a dead giveaway to um, was your the idea social network. Name. The social network, yes. right? Yeah. So yeah, I think he's shooting on uh, Red on MX at the moment and wrapping soon. Can I make a point that I, uh, before we get into the news, as as our first rat hole because mm. we brought up Finch already at the Red Day event, I had a slight, slight. I mean, I thought it was terrific, but there was a slight thing that Michael was talking about from. Um, I think it was Michael from. Uh, uh, anyway, in the, one of the presentations, it may not have been him. Was talking about. Um, Finch's uh, film, which was, of course, a curious case of Benjamin Button, and the yeah. fact that when they went to Blu-ray, they only had the original 1920 by 1080 to work with, as right. opposed to when they went Finch's 7 to uh, Blu-ray. They could yeah. go back and scan the original film at 4K. And, and this was, like, offered up as a good example of why you should shit on the red. Yeah. And I was just sitting in the audience, and I was so biting my tongue, because not to be argumentative, <laughs> though I will be... I just point out three flaws in that logic, right? Point number one is that Blu-ray is only 1920 by 1080. So they didn't actually need to remaster Benjamin Button to 4K to make a Blu-ray because Blu-ray, guess what, is the same resolution as Benjamin Button. Sure. Logic flaw number two. 
which is that any film done these days, even if it's shot on red at 4K, is very unlikely to have its visual effects work done at 4K yeah. because all pipelines are pretty much 2K, which means even if you shot it at 4K, and yes, you could go back to the original source material for any non-effect shots in any major film like, oh, I don't know, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, <laughs> all of the visual effects work would dictate that it was at 2K. It wouldn't matter if the source plates of a guy with a green hood on his head was at 4K. Yeah. You, that doesn't make any difference, right? What yeah. matters is what the visual effects were at because the visual effects generate the master frames, not the red. I mean, I'm not having a go at red, but if you think about it for a second, right? the master negative has to have the digital creation of Benjamin Button's head mm. in it, or it isn't any good as a master frame. It doesn't matter. You're always going to come out the 4K version of Benjamin Button, and it doesn't have the first 92 minutes of the character with a head. I mean, it's not going to work, right? And so I'm sitting in the audience going, well, while I really love Red, I mean, I do, I love it to death, right? This seemed to me to be the most factually useless argument for why to shoot I mean of all the things I could have chosen yeah. as to why to shoot red offering up Benjamin Button versus seven seemed like a bizarre kind of um, piece of logic but one I guess one of the original stems to that argument was the fact that you can still now then essentially probably go and get the neg from uh, say the graduate or whatever and now do but, but a scan up, that will suit okay blu-ray and beyond okay right? understood completely that no? format is is essentially something that you can go back and then extract a much higher resolution out of it then. So we shouldn't really Which, be... Okay, so the logical uh, argument that follows is you should not have any visual effects in films unless they're at 4K. Yeah. But the problem is that the, that, that, that what Red was going at was that you should capture at 1920 by 1080, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's not the problem. The problem is not... The capture. The problem is that none of the effects pipelines are anything but 2K. It's like you know building freeways. They build freeways now to suit the traffic today, and by the time they, as soon as they open, they are almost. Okay, but out let's of- use the traffic analogy then, right? You are saying I should. I am a mayor of of Seymourville. I should. I should build a freeway that's going to be very uh, well respected and applauded for the generation after I've left office. Exactly right. Yes, well, I'm not going to do that because no. I'm a selfish It's bastard. somebody else's problem by the time no, you're... Exactly. And so if you're the guy that's commissioning the film, you are no longer going to be working at the film company. Mm. The graduate, the guy that commissioned the graduate, I'm sure he's feeling really chuffed that he commissioned it <laughs> in such a format that could be done for the Blu-ray. I bet she's not getting points on the Blu-ray. He's dead. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying is that that, the, the, that that whole argument, the whole argument for shooting 4K... There are so many good arguments for shooting 4K, like the quality, the down-resing, the yep. ability to reframe, the ability to do a whole lot of things. Yep. But one of them isn't that in a visual effects film, <laughs> you'll be able to go back and retransfer the master. Okay. But when they shot The Graduate, there was no idea that Blu-ray was, was even you know, a concept. Okay? But now we can clearly see that 4K, whatever the format, is going to be... So you're arguing that the all next that format. Okay, so you're arguing okay. that Iron Man Two should have been mastered in 4K. That's what you're arguing, right? Essentially, yeah. Okay, and I'm saying that that on any film like and the one that they were offering was Benjamin Button, right? Which, as I point out again, 92 minutes at the beginning yep. did not have Brad Pitt. He'd had a digital copy of Brad yeah. Pitt, so not a little bit of the film. Yeah, the first sure. 92 frigging minutes. Sure. Okay, and and didn't stop there. What I'm saying is that unless you are doing the whole post pipeline in 4K. The argument that this is the reason you should shoot 4K is a false or a, an illogical argument. 
So, so if you are right, and and I can see your point, I guess that we should for we should if your whole film isn't in, you know, visual effects, and maybe it's just a few little shots here and there, then you could think about it. Okay, if you'd offered up um, a film that didn't have visual effects, instead of Benjamin Button, then maybe you'd have more of an argument. Except for I would point out that almost every film, from like romantic comedies right through, yeah, has, has tons of bloody visual effects in it. Sure, but if you're talking about replacing a background here and there, or you know, a bit of rig removal. Then, you know. then I guess theoretically you could go back and redo those shots. Well, look, yeah. all I'm saying is that it was when, just... Essentially, when ultraviolet ray comes out in you know, three, four years, 3D, and we're, we've all got you know, 10-foot roll-down, fold-up plasma you know, plasma-painted wallpaper, uh, then you know, I guess the costs to then go back and create a 4K version of uh, your film are going to be pretty, lim- pretty minimal. Look, I, it's I, a stupid argument, I suppose. I just, I guess, I guess the, the thought is maybe we should just start to look to the future people. Well, the stronger and, and argument and is, the, is, the color set, is the color black and white argument, right? Yeah. Like color films were valuable. Black and white films plummeted in value because people didn't want to watch black and white. But we haven't. But that's more of an argument vis-a-vis stereoscopic, perhaps, or something like that. But I, I just, I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's just one of those things that to keep in mind i know idea i know but as an industry as an industry shooting 4k makes an enormous amount of sense but not for that reason yeah i shoot 4k and think it's brilliant i I completely applaud it as a capture format it's just not for the reason of stopping the film benjamin button from being put on a blu-ray at the same resolution it was in the cinemas yeah but if they did want to go back and open up the old files and start to render out some of the effects. You know if, if the source do, files, you know if the source effects files and the source camera files were all 4K, you could essentially just... You know when they wanted know, to go back and redo Toy Story for Pixar for the 3D release? Yeah. They had to go on eBay and buy computer stuff to be able to, to read their the own old fi- files. Yeah, files, exactly. Yeah. Mm. But, and even then, it was fully digital, right? And so they could just run it through. And actually, as we found out in our post-pit discussion at, um, with Pixar, mm. our friend Moxie, they actually rendered so quickly on the render farm that they thought there would be an error because by the time they looked at the logs to see if it was going to render all right, it had, it it had finished rendered. already, yeah, because it was so light. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I have already gone down a massive hole, but I'm just pointing out that they, my problem is that... I, I, I just question shooting 1080p in, is in, arguing, in a world where 2K is the average delivery format. What? Say that again? I, just, I question shooting anything in 1080p Right, where 2K is the average no, no, and I delivery agree with that, format. But I don't agree. We're already shooting below the standard of what we're actually delivering it. I totally agree that we should shoot in 4K. That is not my point. My point is the reason for doing that is not the viability of the Blu-ray of sure. Benjamin Button. Hmm. But, okay, moving well, on. Okay. <laughs> I guess. News. News. <laughs> and now, the Red Setter News. Well, actually, surprisingly, we covered so much stuff when we're in NAB uh, that actually, on the other side of it, there's been actually very little news filtering out. A lot of stupid news that I'm not going to bother covering, like just stupid Sony trying to do a full-frame 35mm camera and Panasonic's stupid four-thirds joke <laughs> cam. I'm not even going to bother. Well, that, that's only a joke cam because of its recording data rates, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it can spit out stuff through SDI. Anyway, it's just... Anyway, I'm not going to talk about stuff that's uh, in a glass case that you can't... You know, is just vaporware at this point. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that takes out a lot of things out of the agenda. <laughs> We're not allowed to talk about things. And a lot of stuff on NAB was pretty much vaporware as okay. well. Okay. Well, what are we going to discuss? Well, you found a really interesting thing that I hadn't found out. Uh, well, a- yeah, I guess it's interesting if you if you own your own red. Um, I guess even if you're a rental company and you don't have one of these. If not, I'm not quite sure why. But this is a uh, red focus, which is essentially, I mean, we've seen a few of these, but uh, this is a dioscope or essentially a uh, focusing tool for adjusting the flange depth on your Red one. It sounds fascinating already, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but it's got red all over it. So how 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 cool? Oh, I mean, it is actually really good to get your your focus and uh, the lens correct on the mounts. And also with all of these interchangeable mounts, this was something that had been raised. That if I'm going to be changing Canon mounts to red mounts to special red mounts to Nikon mounts, I'm going to need to be able to make sure that my back focus and all my focusing is correct onto the back plane of the uh, sensor yeah flange depth i keep i keep going to say back focus but it's not back focus because that's more relating to the actual more sort of in, in a way relates to lens uh so well flange if, depth, if the flange depth was out the back focus would be out yes how's that yeah okay you're rolling your eyes at me no no it's yeah <laughs> right, i'm gonna call it flange depth um so this is a self-powered uh so it's back illuminated. Essentially, once you pl- plug it into your uh, the PL mount, replace your lens. There's no focus control on it. This is entirely set, uh, set and forget. Essentially, you uh, bolt this into where your lens is, and you get essentially get to see a Siemens star like the classic focus star, and uh, essentially adjust your back focus of your uh, Red One. And obviously, with the uh, Epic and Scarlet coming, um, you're going to be able to adjust the uh, back focus through one screw on the uh, on the through the side of the body of your epic or scarlet yeah basically there's a light inside it with a yeah essentially you're just looking at a nice backlit clean it's like looking at a lit focus chart but it's focused at infinity isn't it yeah it is infinity i think it is is. otherwise you wouldn't work correctly right yeah and then you'd have to get your uh your focus your dioscope calibrated as well it has to be it has to be something that you know and uh, and this is about what be set and forget it's nine hundred bucks, uh, fifteen hundred if you're an existing Red One owner, or if you own if you own uh, Pro Primes, Red Pro Primes. Uh, one little strange thing is that Jim said there's something uh, pretty special about the Red Focus, um, specifically the custom target within it, the Siemens Star, that they will announce soon. So interesting. What's the bet that the dot in the middle of it is a red logo? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, so look anyway um, a link to it in the show notes but uh, are they shipping yet uh, no not yet coming soon but the soon. stations are shipping is that right yeah red stations are shipping which is people are starting to get these I don't think people are getting the red mag 2.5 uh, the red mag versions just yet because obviously the camera that it uh, mates with is not out in the wild yet but uh, so the base of the red station, I, the idea of it is that it has a, uh, I guess, a, a base powering module, and if you stack them, they've got the red mag. At the moment, they've got the red mag 2.5 for sale and the red CF module. So basically, you just stack them together, and they self power. I guess through um, through contacts in the bottom, you can actually sort of stack and dock them together. Uh, and then you only need to power the base uh, module, and then that will self-power the other two. Um, but uh, obviously, I'm imagining once the Epics come out, that uh, the you know the Red Mag version is going to be really popular. So it'd be good to try and get in or pre-order that uh, the, the Red Mag version because once Epics start to ship, I think they're going to be quite hard to find. Um, I think I was a bit sort of on. Un- can you daisy chain Isata, Mike? 
Do you Daisy know? chain of like, I mean, you know, Isada? Yeah, I mean, because the, 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 these modules have two Firewire 800 sockets on them, so you can daisy chain one and just have your Firewire, one Firewire 800 going out to your laptop, say. But there's only one eSATA port, so I was just wondering, would have been good if they'd had two of those, and then you could daisy chain the eSATA and just have one cable heading out to the module, I suppose. And then it doesn't matter whether you plugged in red the CF card or... Um, well, the red this mag. is exactly how it works but you've got a there's a linker cable that goes up between the modules right right so yes it daisy chains but there's a linker daisy chaining module thing that runs up to between each layer right okay as I understand it okay I don't have one I just thought power was linked between all of them rather than just actual data. oh I see what you're saying uh, that's a good question I think maybe, they, maybe they somebody knows the, the answer the, to that that would make can... sense if they linked data as well and uh, if anyway Look, we'll be we'll, we'll time will tell if someone's actually got one of these. Um, then uh, tell us if it works. Yeah, let us know how it, how it all functions. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much the <laughs> the red hardware news. Uh, we have uh, one other little, <laughs> uh, and yes, we have an iPhone app. This is the red user iPhone app. This is uh, called Code Red by Lab Forty Two. And it's essentially just a um, red user on your iPhone. So someone said, great, now we can tell Jim how fantastic he is 24-7. Okay. I think I'd be more interested if it was on an iPad. A uh, bit more real estate to read a, uh, the UI. But maybe, it, I mean, it obviously works on an iPad if you press the two times button. But um, Yeah. Have you seen any iPad apps yet that are cinematography related? No, not really. I mean, there's a few that I'm hoping will we'll get that way, like the um, Cinemac uh, stuff, the Hitchcock, and not Hitchcock, sorry, we can't call it Hitchcock it used to anymore. Be the the yes. app formerly known as Hitchcock. Formerly known as Hitchcock. And uh, yeah, a lot of those sort of storyboarding apps. Ian Bloom or somebody uh, suggest that a really good thing would be to, for example, use the iPad as the live feed from a... Uh, SLR in um, live mode. Yeah, that would oh, because I guess is it one to one, one on one. The uh, Canon software, the Canon control software that was going to do live feed, yeah. or does live feed, I think through to uh, via a laptop through to uh, your iPhone. That'd be cool if they did it through yeah, to but a camera that, control and all that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. Well, I, mean, I, I guess mean, I that, love that app. Right? I guess it works. I mean, I'm thought you, it would work on an iPhone pad in two times mode but i'm just wondering if there are any sort of ipad specific apps yeah uh nothing i'll come across you know yet. that it's a real um gold rush right now because if you had a, a really good cinematography app even if it did nothing really that you'd absolutely need it everyone that has an ipad like us would yeah. buy it just to show their friends <laughs> look and then it does this yeah I so you can legitimize it rather than just showing them the disney talking book to my wife i, I bought several apps the sole purpose of which like uh, alice in Wonderland and the Elements app for the iPad, which is to show how wonderful the iPad was. I actually think that we could... Somebody's already discussed this. I think it's obviously... For stills photographers, it's a great uh, platform for doing stuff. Um, I think Stu was commenting that it was really good for um, presenting his work like storyboards. I'm wondering, as a director, whether you would find it useful. Yeah, that's part of the reason i am sort of got one. I'm I'm definitely going to uh, start doing presenting storyboards and or mainly location files to be able to hand over the iPad to the client on the other side of the table would be just perfect because 90 times out of 100 when I go into those boardrooms and these are major boardrooms you know with like multi-million dollar AV fit outs right for, for like four by three monitor yeah and, or, or the monitor is all squished or you know it's not working and no one can find the remote and the IT people can't come up and fix it it's just 
just doesn't it's it is more often than not that you will not be able to present anything and you're just left to just showing the casting tape on your di- on your um, laptop and then you've got to sort of turn the thing around and give it to the other person and as soon as you do that then you can't touch the keyboard and it's it's a total pain so to be able to give them the location files or the casting and they can literally hold the pot- potential cast or the location in their hand rather than it sort of being a laptop in the middle of the room that only half the people at the boardroom can actually see, then I, mean, I think I, it's going to be fantastic. That's what I would use it for. I would use it for having storyboards on set. Sorry. Sorry? Well, no, no, but I think this is a valid use of it, right? I would have it for storyboards on set, um, especially if I could annotate over the top of them and draw yeah. them. I think there's a thing that does annotation of PDFs. Right. So I would, I guess, produce my storyboards as PDFs PDF. and then be able to draw on top of them to explain things to people. Um, but the other thing I, I actually use it for um, is the pro prompter, which is um, ah, yes, this was actually awesome. quite, a, quite a useful thing. Um, yeah. this saw is, this at NAB. This is brilliant. Uh, by pro prompter, it's uh, essentially yeah, iPad, uh, and you control it with your iPhone, and you've already been, been putting it to test. Yeah, so literally we've uh, got a rig. Now, that should be warn you that if you are trying to rig this up, as we were, to a RED or to some high-end cameras... The sort of entry level, I think it's like 800 bucks or something, version is kind of built to have cheaper, cheerier cameras, the little DVs. Yeah. So we got rid of the underneath bracket and the uh, grip handle that would normally hold. Well, I guess everyone knows what a prompter is, right? It's a piece of glass at 45 degrees. The iPad sits where the screen would be as the screen. It reflects up so that when I'm talking, I can see what the script is. And of course, I can use my. Uh, one of my um, iPhones to be the controller. So as you said, I would touch it to stop it or swipe it to make it go faster or slower. But the actual mounting to it isn't designed to go on a high-end camera. And in fact, even when we were mounting ours on our 5D Mark II, we've rigged it up with a um, a baby uh, magic arm that we have from Red. And that hooks on, you know, the um, flash hot shoe on the top? top? Yeah. So it sits in there. We've got a little inert hot shoe thing yeah. and from that the magic arm hangs down and that is actually also a better way to do it because the it's not too heavy it's no, pretty it's not too heavy. but it's, it's it, okay it does tend to lean shoe. away a little bit and if it's mounted from the bottom if you think about the pivot point being at the bottom it as it sags away it sort of leans away from the lens where if it's mounted at the top it's held tight against the lens yeah but also the other advantage of mounting it with the magic arm off the top is that uh, we get rid of a lot of weight. We don't need the bottom bracket and we don't need the fitting arm. And we can put on a steady cam. So, in fact, we had the um, the rig on a steady cam, both with a SLR and with a um, P2. Uh, P2, yep. Right. And we've also had it with a red. Um, and we published a photo of the – I published a photo um, – in my Twitter feed, but I'll put it in the show notes as well so you can actually see this rig uh, on a Steadicam on a, an SLR. But actually, it's a very legitimate use of the iPad and the initial I... Uh, oh, it's fantastic. And one of the, the issues, sorry to interrupt, is the fact that there's no batteries involved. Apart from you do need to have a common Wi-Fi point. Your controller can be wireless and is internally powered. The iPad is internally powered and, as we know, just lasts like f- forever. Well, so the no really cables and all that sort of dicking around, particularly with the Steadicam, and you get that it's 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 wireless. Yeah, and the the great thing I find is that uh, getting stuff into it, you it has an application. So if I want to put a script in, I would log the simple text script on a server which is theirs, right. and then this on my iPad looks at that server and uh, then sees that there's a new script there and it appears in my list of scripts to run. But also I can just email it to myself. And then I can just copy and paste from the email program uh, into the iPad 
program and therefore I've got it uh, and that's actually a better way to go if you want to tip on doing this because there are there is the ability to generate text in um, in your if you're on a Mac and I presume mm. you are if you're even listening to this <laughs> there must be a way I guess to edit it hopefully no no you can edit it both you know well, okay you can edit it a number of ways but if you use text edit which mm. is the simple thing on the Mac yeah you can actually generate simple text that isn't as far as the iPad's pro prompter concerned, simple text. And it only takes in simple text without lots of clever formatting. So I had a bunch of maths stuff. So it rejected the file and just wouldn't open it. I emailed it to myself and copy and pasted it in and it got around that that, uh, encoding problem. And I needed to actually encode, which is really weird, one of those, I'm sure they'll fix it problems. But I actually had to save my text file in a not only simple text format, but in a simple text format that was RTF or whatever. No, no, beyond that, it wouldn't even do RTF. No, it had to be in like the the Windows, um, mm. you know, simple oh. text format or something, which was ghastly. So I just gave up on that, emailed it to my iPad, and then just copy and pasted it over. So yes, you can edit it in the in the app, but I think it's a good use of it. And um, I also saw today that somebody in a newsroom, they're given iPads out for their news crew because they find it a lot easier um, when people are reporting stuff to not constantly give them new scripts they just simply access the script the latest script yeah wirelessly and it just keeps on changing yeah. throughout the day and wherever they go when they're in makeup or whatever and they want to look at their script and i've got to say i think that would be an interesting use if i was doing a lot of um you know some kind of a one of those shows the reality type well not a reality show but you know a lifestyle show yeah and i had a lot of scripts for actors I think if you just had an iPad that they were using to learn lines and go through it, and then somebody that's in the production department can be updating those, I think uh, I would I would love this to be the format for um, having my uh, call sheet. Yep, and big enough for maps. The maps can obviously then be interactive and go away. And I would just I can't wait till we can actually just stream video to it and with much with with little or no delay because. I mean, like the H264 module for Red. As soon as that comes, that'd be fantastic. Rather than lugging around. You know, three or I mean, the other the shoot the other day, I had two. There's so many clients and uh, agency that we actually they ordered like three 17 inch. Oh, for the, the video, three course? 17 inch Panasonics. I said, "Why have we got three? I said, "Well, we've got so many clients." So they literally formed them into this kind of um, um, huge circle vision kind of uh, widescreen panel where 15 people could just sit around almost in this sort of circle and all looking straight on a monitor. They're all in the same room, but just literally so they could all have the same view of the of the video village. It was just nuts. So imagine if they can then theoretically just all be handed or you know share within one between two or they can actually then walk up to the camera and talk to me or I can be on set and you know moving props or whatever, holding an iPad and you know, I think we just sensational as soon as we can start streaming video to things like this particularly when they're so nice i mean it's almost one of the things if someone gives you a big enough job you can almost say well here's your video split and uh when we wrap you can take it with you what you should it's do is yours. get a sticker on the back you know how i come on i've got one of those um gel skins yeah i've got the jams you know the classic mod mod thing yeah but if you did one of those with your no i'm serious with your film company's logo on the back mm. of it and then you had the script and the notes on it and the video feed and you gave that to a client yeah i mean quite a, that, that's probably you did it's serious next job giving you the next job crack because if you do an, an, an ad in a pro, trade magazine it's going to be five grand or something to advertise your yeah film production company yeah and for five grand you could buy what you know 
nine of these. Yeah. And uh, if you had nine of them with your company thing on the back of it and you yeah. judiciously gave those to clients. And man, then on the next shoot with using other companies. And, of course, you, you, you do the screensaver with your logo as well because they take your client a while to work oh, out look, how I mean, to they're it. almost borderline, you know, get, not giveaway, but, you know, they're almost borderline that you can certainly make that work. If you can make them use them on, on, use them on set, if, you can almost rent, mon- you know, it's probably about the same price you can, to have a couple of those than, than it is to rent those monitors for a couple of, couple of days. I, 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 anyway, I'm I just shuddering love it. in a world where just, you can actually afford to do that. But anyway, I just, that's advertising. I just love it. Indie just, filmers, indie film people are listening to this going, you, what? <laughs> Give what away? <laughs> well, people, you know, I mean, people were mortified when we gave away an iPad at the um, FX Guide party at, in Vegas. Yeah, um, and they weren't mortified; they were just mortified they didn't win. Hey, uh, <laughs> so, um, so if we, I was remiss at the top of the show, and it, I appreciate you guys having patience with us because we're back and trying to do stuff. But we, I didn't even flag the interview that um, we're about to play. Um, uh, so we obviously had a show last week from uh, Las Vegas where we were just talking about um, what we thought was going on. Uh, what we thought would be interesting is to have a chat to some uh, people. And we picked a friend of ours in New Zealand who has a rental company who's just gone back to New Zealand and done a kind of a night with the uh, New Zealand um, cinematography community about what saw. And I thought it'd be interesting to get his perspective and also the perspective of reporting back to the community at a you know high-end professional level um, what took people's interest and after the dust has settled and the and the hype has kind of separated was there anything that um you know really seemed to be stuff that uh that people really latched onto so let's now cross to this interview that you recorded earlier jace with uh, scott webster So thanks for taking the time to talk, Scott. I really appreciate it. No problem. Uh, so you went to NAB, obviously. We saw you there. Yeah. You went to NAB as a rental house. So what were you hoping to see and, and did you find it? Well, from our perspective uh, down here in New Zealand, my main mission was to go out and check out the whole HDSLR trend that seemed very big in the States, which hasn't really made the same impact in New Zealand at least as much as it has at the States and I was just I was expecting it but was totally surprised by you know (laughs) the whole show floor covered in 5Ds and 7Ds on dollies and on tripods on steadicams and whereas in the past where I visited and people doing their their web videos on you know handicams on Z1s or or Canons um, everyone was running around with a 5D or 7D on a on a monopod and um, shooting, which yeah. was just a huge eye opener for me. Certainly was. I mean, last year was theoretically the the really big push for 3D. This was 3D and SLRs. Yeah, and uh, I just uh, I, this week I did a talk to the New Zealand Cinematographers Society. And we had a bit of screening of some MX tests that we had done a few weeks back when we first got our camera and just gave them a brief on uh, on NAB and just trying to um, convey how big the whole HDSLR trend in the States is. I mean, and one of the other things I uh, got out of that was meeting up with uh, obviously other camera rental houses and red owners and how much an impact on that whole trend is having on their business as camera owners and, and rental houses. Well, what's the uh, what was the general takeout of uh, the guys there? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, doing my own research. Obviously, when we have 
DOPs or assistants come through and we're just, you know, checking the temperature to see what's happening um, out in the out in the field as such as we just, you know, uh, I guess it's internet versus reality and the, the reality that we're facing here is people don't like shooting on the cameras and um, they don't like the results in the grade yet, which is a, a sort of totally opposite to what you're seeing online and uh, and the feedback that you do get from from the states, so it just makes it difficult for us to make a choice. And um, and what I did find at NAB in terms of um, just those, even those two little teaser announcements from Panasonic and Sony with the uh, Panasonic with the Micro Four Thirds, the AF100, and Sony with the the Z35, is it's just those two announcements are enough for from our perspective to put the brakes on that and go well. You know, look, let's not go there. And you know, within nine months, we're going to have professional products that are going to do that. But I guess the other side of that is, I expect with the Sony and the Panasonic announcement, is that will spur Canon into action to get their their pro camera, I guess, for a for a better term out there with either the 5D or a 7D type sensor. And I think yeah, just Sony and Panasonic will will get those guys. Um, going now yeah there was certainly not much to show from canon in terms of anything pro coming or not even rumored um but speaking of pro cameras you had a bit of a play with alexa yeah yeah i mean uh it was crazy wasn't it the the ari stand sort of brought back the uh the days of red when they when they had a booth at the, did, at the wall did. yeah <laughs> and the crowds and that that was a sort of that buzz was definitely amongst people at that stand and uh and the ARI guys were very proud and very upbeat and very positive and uh in past years when I have been to that stand it has been a bit standoffish in terms of their uh elitism if you wish for yeah. their for their products but it was definitely a noticeable different and a difference in their attitude and talking to people and um and and giving you information on uh, the Alexa and that range of cameras, and I think you know the, it almost seems like a culture change within Ari itself with this product. I agree. It does really seem like very energetic push from them, and doesn't feel like they're clinging on to you know the old days of film. Yeah, absolutely, and it's definitely got the buzz um, around it. And as I was, you know, as I've been trying to explain to people that. Um, you know why? Why is there so much excitement about this camera? As well, from from our perspective, and I'm I'm sure from a lot of um, people who who have owned F900s or F900Rs or even Vericam, when we bought those cameras, uh, they were the same price as what you can now buy an Ari Alexa for, and if you um, add on a HD ENG lens, your your you could set up an Alexa with a set of the new either Red Pro Primes or Zeiss Compact Primes and you're away and shooting. It's just amazing. Yeah, well, with cameras like Alexa costing essentially more than a quarter of what they used to, these cameras are now within reach. The DPs would start to own them and it's the lenses they rent. Yeah, well, I can I can see that being a continuing, sort of, well, a trend for rental houses. Very difficult for us because... Uh, for our background, as we've strictly always been a, a video two-third inch B4 mount house, uh, rental house, we don't carry any film equipment. So even for us in New Zealand, it's been a, it's been a struggle to to get those 
get that glass on the ground and, and get that investment rolling. Uh, so, but with the cameras getting cheaper, it does make more sense to start investing in the glass and provide that service to DPs. And I think uh, where we will really see that kick in is with the Scarlett uh, S35 camera, because that is, you know, if it if it trends out to to what's been um, laid out so far by Red, I mean that's an insanely cheap camera. Already we're seeing a trend now that DPs go on shoots and they've got a 5D or a 7D that they just bring along. Well, I expect that to happen with the Scarlet S35. It's just they may go on to a film shoot or an Alexa shoot or some other shoot and they will have an S35 in their, in their bag, which they'll bring out as a second camera or or quite possibly could be the main camera. It could be you hire me, you come on the S35, you guys sort out the lenses. Uh, that that could be a real trend, I think, uh, with that camera. So did you come away from NAB with the Rocket Rentals wallet slightly lighter or the credit card slightly toastier than when you'd left? Uh, not so much, not so much. It was, it's just, uh, I've just found it incredibly difficult with the... Um, the Z35 and AF100 have put a real handbrake on where we go as a company because certainly we've seen we've we've gone from the impact of EX3s and EX1s with lettuce adapters to Canon 5Ds and 7Ds. Yeah. And now we've got these two products that are going to be with us within nine months, which are going to once again change the market entirely. So even from not even as a rental house, but just as a purchaser, it, you could be thinking, well, I'm going to drop 77K on an Alexa, yet there's this little Sony camera coming out, and I don't know how good that's going to be or what the price is, but could be really interesting. And then there's that $6,000 Panasonic AF100. I mean, how much are those cameras going to impact onto my big dollar investments like the Alexa, like the Epic? Um, you know, it's it's very hard to judge so far out, but yeah. there's enough to make you stop and go, do I want to be going there? I mean, how hard am I going to get hit on this? I've, I've re- realistically, I may only have 12 months to turn this camera over. But there's always that tier, those tiers of rental where you've got the high end and the low end, and obviously Alexa is no doubt appealing to that higher end. Yeah, so there's, there's no doubt about that, but in, in our country... Uh, at least the budgets dictate that um, you know I, you may wind up having that Alexa, but the jobs you may not just get the volume of work to turn that camera over, whereas you could get the uh, get the Sony uh, uh, Z35, and that could be working all the time. Right. So, any surprise gotta haves at the show for you? Uh, for us, uh, for our company, is the the Fujinon Ari Allura line of lenses uh, are yeah. that 45 to 250. Um, soon as I have, uh, you know, soon as we have the opportunity to quote on a drama, um, I'll be putting one of those on a job as, as quickly as I can get a hold of one. A lot of fantastic lenses like that uh, around. There's some sensational glass and sensational zoom ranges and, and speed of zooms. Yeah, uh, and 
finally um, got to see the uh, the unique optics guys and their lenses, which were really interesting. And and I think and once again the whole um, crazy mixed up world we live in. Uh, we now have three three types of main mounts: uh, B4, PL, and EF, with all the uh, cinema companies coming out with, which is just goes to show. I mean, how huge this whole whole DSLR thing where EF is now a professional uh, cinema mount for, <laughs> for lenses. Well, look, congratulations. You've restrained yourself. The uh, bank account is uh, safe for the moment anyway. Yeah, so I did. We have pulled trigger on uh, our Epic Stage 2 cameras, so we've got that rolling. Um, and that was uh, it was the first time, actually, I, I made it over to the post pit while Teb was over there with, uh, with the demo Epic, and I collared him after his talk with Mike and um, and that was the first time that I actually got to hold the Epic in that DSLR config. Yeah. Seals the deal, doesn't it? Oh, it's just, you know, I, you just pick it up and, and I was trying to explain to people back here, I said, you just do not, you just don't realise that this thing is just slightly, you know, it's it's slightly larger than a DSLR and you're going to be shooting 100 frames at, at 5K on this camera and it's and you can hold it in one hand. I got a little bit over the weight and the delay and all that sort of stuff but then as soon as you pick it up and put it in your hand you get yes. hard. Always yeah. forgiven. Yeah, it's um, you can stare at pictures on the net as, um, as much as you like but once you have that moment it's, it's yeah, it's it's signed up. Thanks very much. Excellent. Well, look, thanks for chatting, Scott. Uh, we'll keep in touch as always. And where can people find you guys? Uh, you can find uh, Rocket at rocketrentals.com. And you can find me on the Twitter at uh, rocket underscore Scott. Excellent. Mate, thanks for taking the time and uh, keep in touch. Uh, pleasure. Oh, and Jace, um, thanks, Scott, for that. And also we should point out uh, that uh, Rocket Rentals um, is rocketrentals.com if you're trying to look at them, even though they're in New Zealand. It's a .com. And, um, yeah, Scott's a great guy. And you've, you've, we've said this before, right? You've, um, he's been on the show before. You've rented stuff from him yeah, before. Yeah, I've rented stuff from him. It's fantastic. In fact, I think I rented my first uh, red job before there was even you know almost more than one red in the country. I think he basically almost had the first, the first apart from... Apart from Mr. Jackson, he had the uh, some of the first reds in the country, so he's really switched on with. And them. as you heard, then that they're they're more than just red; they're more than just uh, you know any one particular anything really. Um, they're very uh, wide in their understanding of stuff from Fujinon ENG lenses right up to um, you know PL mounts and, and everything else and lights and. And he came to Nat, obviously came to NAB, saw him, so he's really a proactive sort of member of the. Uh, the sort of um, industry and, a, and, a nice and an excellent Twitterer, as we have. Uh, I think we've uh, he's been one of our Twitter recommendations in the past. So, um, some other stuff that uh, we want to discuss: uh, workflow, in particular, the fact that Avid has announced native R three D support on the timeline. This is big news. Yeah. Well. Um I mean, obviously, this is with MC5, with the latest yep. version 5. Okay. Now, this is not open uh, out until June, I think, Mike. Is that right? You're probably more in touch with uh, their um, uh, timeline for getting this out. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's uh, shown at NAB, and yep. uh, I don't actually – I'll check the exact shipping date. But, um, yes, basically, we have R3D support now in the timeline, which is, which is a big difference to what we had before. Yeah, well, being able to sort of, and obviously not just R3D, but it sounds like they've opened up to 
uh, a whole world of uh, previously sort of Apple style codecs and uh, QuickTime codecs, which means theoretically you can drop uh, R3Ds, DSLR footage all into the same timeline, hopefully, and uh, be able to play back without major pain. I don't think it means you need to have a Red Rocket card installed to be able to do this. I think this, theoretically this is something you're going to be able to do regardless. Yeah, you, you basically open and, and edit the R3D files through the um, AMA, but it's not transcoded. So these are scaled to HD uh, frame size, yep. and then you can work directly with, uh, with the Red files. And that's, as you said, in Media Composer 5 with the um, AMA, which, if you don't know, is the uh, Avid Media Access stuff. So that's and that's all s- being completely re-engineered. It's, like, really quite exciting. So it should be pretty seamless. You don't have to sort of go through any third-party thing or, you know, this AMA is pretty much an embedded part of the software. Look, we, before we had to use the uh, Metafuse, and um, and uh, so we can do that without having to use Metafuse. Now, now there's nothing really wrong with Metafuse, but it did place a, an extra level of abstraction between what we wanted. Of course, you have full access to the metadata and also the color management stuff as well. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting, actually. I, and I think what's really interesting to me is the renaissance uh, we saw in terms of Avid's presence at NAB. That all but um, left the show a couple of years ago. And uh, now um, they were back in force. In fact, I think this was one of the most... John and I were discussing the other day from... Um, John Montgomery and I were discussing this is probably one of the, the big uh, landmark announcements of this NAB, actually, is this ability to work natively with Yeah, them. I mean, it's one of those things. It kind of got swamped a little bit for us for Red Centre a little bit uh, in all the other fantastic news, but this has probably been one of the things we've probably been so eagerly anticipating for the last two years of the show, really. But interestingly, uh, in addition to obviously Red, which is, is huge, um, it actually will also work natively with QuickTime formats such as Apple's ProRes, and H.264, which is interesting, of course, because you might be producing ProRes off um, an ARRI and so on Alexa, so you could take that in natively as well, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, look, I think it's just going to be, again, as I've said, I'm like a broken record with this. The more this fits, the more Red can fit into the the kind of native workflow and the existing workflow and not cause waves and, and not be a pain, the the less uh, it the less it's the easier it's going to be for me to sort of get well, it's just read onto speed stuff on, up, isn't it? On, onto set enormously yeah and the you know it, it's production wise and schedule wise it's you know uh, it's just less give me less uh, reason for producers to tell me no you have to shoot film and if you're worried about it it is of course full four 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 HD RGB color space processing inside Media Composer it's not like uh, this is a a hack um, so it's you know it's not um, oh, but what's the catch? It doesn't work properly or it's yeah. not. Well, I shouldn't say it's not I'm not, I haven't been running with it because it's been announced, but I'm saying it's not a hack in the sense that it all works well, but only at, you know, power res or something. So I guess this is maybe, I guess this is a move or will signal a move, whether they're thinking of it or not, that the Avid will start to come away from its kind of offline only kind of roots and be a bit more like a Final Cut Pro. People will start to use it to finish out, to final out, the more it's more open to some of the more indie formats now, you're going to be able to use it to, you know, more the way people use Final Cut Pro, which is which literally just to final out from there and, you know, I guess put, do all your colour correction within it and, and, you know, without having to go to the yeah, major I think the only thing I'd, I'd flag here, though, is that, that just going beyond the press release, as we always say we like to do, this doesn't actually solve the media volume problem which is what we discussed, I think, even last week or the week before, which is that let's say you were shooting a commercial, not a problem. But if we're shooting a feature, 
that would mean that I would have to have the ability to natively have all of the R3D files available to the Media Composer 5, which is not an insignificant problem if you are shooting, you know, multiple cameras. You shoot two, three, four cameras. And um, and actually, while we're on that, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but um, I'll come back to it. But let me deflag you this in a second. I want to ask you about shooting multiple cameras. But if you are shooting multiple cameras or you're shooting very high shooting ratios, and let's face it, with stuff like red and electron stuff, who the hell won't? Yeah. Um, then you're going to need really large disk arrays because as compressed as the R3D file is, and it's lovely kind of smaller data rates, obviously, to fit on a CF card, yeah. still can, can clock up like gigabytes and gigabytes of data. Yeah, absolutely. And your avid media composer, while it's normally got quite a lot of storage, doesn't normally have anywhere near enough to hold all of the original master R3D files. It can be made to do that. But like on a major feature, um, like a I don't know Australia or a you know a, one of the big features that's been shot here, a Wolverine, or whatever. Knowing whatever, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, I don't know so much about the knowing, but some of the bigger ones they have had uh, six, seven, eight major avids set up. So it's not just an avid we're talking about; it's six or seven of these darn suckers, each of them with access to uh, a huge amount of material. Now, of course, with the uh, the centralized storage capabilities that Avid's had and I think Unity has been one of the biggest selling points of Avid for years mm-hmm. but nevertheless if you were to have remote um, stations like for any reason Final Cut Pro server kind of thing yeah it's it's uh, it works um, okay <laughs> it's um, <laughs> okay Unity is uh, this centralized storage system so okay diverging a bit now but if you're on a television program for example a really good example of this is that you would have a centralized server that would allow you to do offline editing with one avid which would then access to um, ds for doing some effects work and then would access to the online for producing high resolution outputs and this unity backbone um, allows a shared model and it's really good really reliable and really popular and yet, all I'm saying is that if you were to have tons of avids working on a feature because you have tons of these rooms and you start getting distributed because you're working in different countries and that's what obviously happens, you can yeah. have duplicates of this data. So it's not going to be just one copy in addition to, of course, the, the vaulted copy. It's not going to be just one copy that avid's dealing with. There may be multiple copies of the film's rushes that various avid editors are working on or effects editors are needing to access. And so all I'm just saying is that in terms of workflow, this doesn't, tick every box if you're doing long form or episodic or features now for a commercial you could probably happily shoot for a couple of days and you could store all of that media on a local drive and then just cut it and you wouldn't care less yeah um but that would then get us around to that workflow that we discussed um well in fact we discussed with our friend in queensland at uh, zoom tv where where what they were doing up there was just finishing on their final cut yeah and then outputting a master that was high quality and taking it into flame just to do some titles and graphics and and final tweaking so avid definitely would be able to do that so you're right in that sense offline online it's uh it's definitely blurring the image but it doesn't necessarily solve hardcore mega films which are shooting astonishing amounts which gets me back to my question sorry you interrupting no it gets me back to my question about shooting multiple cameras because um i've had some really interesting discussions with some dops just over coffee and stuff when we were in america um do you have you shot lots of stuff where you would have multiple cameras set up for dialogue and stuff? Usually a couple, but usually I guess when I'm doing kids stuff, we often, you know, or kids or, or animals, when we've got um, really short time or attention spans, we've definitely run at least a couple of cameras, at least a, and usually reds just because of the amount of footage that you would crank through if it was film. 
Because I, I was one day up here, I was talking to um, who was shooting sequences that had regularly have five cameras on it. Yeah. Um, and mainly because I guess, well, I don't know why that would be. I guess partly because of the stars just giving the performances and getting right. it and partly because they could. Um, my problem has been... I don't know how you can shoot five cameras and not get in the way of each other. It's just, that's hard yeah. enough with two, but... And also, uh, you tend to light to the camera. Yeah. So I tend to find that... It comes down to how the director works and how the producer tells him to work, I, I guess, depending on, you know, if is it cheaper to have five cameras and get through the scene all the shorter or are you finding that, you know, you need to nurse every shot and lighting for one, trying to light for two cameras just doesn't means that you're not getting the lighting the way you want. So, yeah. I mean, we've done definitely. five cameras on stunts or complicated yeah. stuff where it's, especially it's not particularly lit in the sense it's outdoors. No, it's, and, it's just getting different angles so you can stretch out a gag and just make, make, a, make a crash or an explosion last, you know, five times as long as it actually did. But I, I think if I was filming anything that was lit lit, well, I, I'm not, if I, when I've done it, it hasn't worked because it always works for one camera and yeah. it doesn't tend to work for the other. And mm-hmm. I can only ever look at one monitor so i just even i've got two in front yeah, of me same I just for me directing wise i can always never i can never always concentrate on one image at one time and uh the other one's almost like bonus just get what you can and i'll be surprised later in the editing room and uh and i can't just sit there at a bank of monitors and just you know direct them all because you i mean because i think i'm right in saying on babe 2 a friend of mine was doing stuff with george miller and he actually had not only his monitors for his cameras for his setup mm. but second units piped over stuck up so that he could see what second unit was filming as well and keep an eye on that. I can understand that a little bit. I could definitely understand that, actually, because the whole second unit thing, it's really hard when it's not your baby and, you know, you don't want to have to... Particularly if you're someone who's not... Oh, excellent at delegating. <laughs> Not excellent at delegating. No, no, no. I've been, I've been the second unit guy when the director is is really not very good at delegating or, uh, you know, happy to just have someone uh, just run with it. You know, and you have to reshoot things three times. It'd be really nice to have them just sort of approve it once. So yeah, that kind of system definitely can work for, um, you know, for second unit. I'm sure Alex Royce maybe works that way for. Um, I don't know for the last couple of jobs. I think if you've got a big, like let's get a lot of extras on a big exterior, I can yeah. totally see it because oh, absolutely. Um, I've had times where we've been able to pick off on a long lens little moments of stuff from yeah. a crowd that Definitely. really work well um, with the wide. But uh, I mean, this this was actually um, specifically discussing a major Hollywood film. I probably can't say what it was, but it was mm. people sitting around outdoor furniture. So there were four or five actors, all of whom you'd know the names of because it was like, you know, A grade. Yeah. I mean, particularly if they're improving, that's another thing. Literally, when, when one take is completely different from another, it's not the kind of thing where you can immediately just pop around and repeat that whole scene in four different angles on one camera. But that's where it's fantastic where, you know, and he'll just back off on long lens and just watch it and he'll have two or three cameras on long lenses just literally just shooting the shit out of it as 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 the madness uh, ensues so definitely it comes down to director styles and um and the shooting style and performance of actors and you know the schedule and yeah so it's definitely um horses for courses did you know that um that good morning vietnam was actually sort of pretty much based on a true story yeah, that there was a real DJ. Although he was not a comic DJ. Right. He was a DJ DJ and uh-huh. did get kicked out of Vietnam. But rather than being anti-war, he was kind of anti-stupidity of war. Right. Um, but he was 
I never knew that. I was like, yeah, I didn't know he wasn't the funny guy. I'd kind of imagine it was, you know, no, close think, to the bone. But I think it was much more. Well, you know, there's that bit where they're playing that great. There's a great montage where they're playing rock and roll, and I think it's playing like Hendrix or something. And you yeah, got the guys the cleaning things. It's like this fabulous montage. I love it of Hendrix. Yeah, yeah. I, it, that's a definite. If that was on iTunes, I'd watch that again. Yeah, it's well, definitely one of those films. It doesn't come around often enough. You know, it's not one of those films that just comes. Eighty-seven. By. It's definitely in the eighties, right? Yeah. It was, a young oh, Ron was Williams. It, it was the Ron Williams' comic performance, so no beard. Right. Goodwill Hunting. Okay. Beard. Serious Robin Williams. <laughs> he puts the beard on when yeah, he's It's like Star Trek, you know, odd and evens. It's whenever he's got a beard, it's serious performance. Sorry. Whenever he's not got a beard, he's backing it up. What was the Star Trek odd and evens? Well, the odd and even, the odd films suck, and the even oh, films okay, are great. Okay, okay, like right, the first right, one right. sucked because it was self-indulgent. Like the Indiana one Jones. Was really good. Yeah. The third one was sucked the fourth one was find the whale it was really good the fifth one was find god it was pathetic the sixth one was really good just right. odd even curse right you don't know the star trek odd even curse no no it's similar to indiana jones <laughs> because the fourth one sucked fourth one sucked i'm thinking that the, the even one second one ones sucked that. and the third one was good so uh, uh, one three it was even even sucked okay other yeah. way around in star trek universe yeah yeah Feel free to send your emails of hate to Mike S at fxguide.com. Um, okay, so uh, let's go back to some more gear stuff. And uh, you wanted to discuss, did you want to discuss some stuff about red exposure? Well, look, you know, to be honest, I think I might do a little bit more homework, which is what I should have done before I shot my last job on your, your MX. <laughs> I basically, did you like shooting on the MX? I, I mean, that was fa- fantastic. It was really, did really Did you notice nice. a difference shooting on the MX over shooting on the... <laughs> Look, if I'd side by, it wasn't like I was at night under sodium vapors, like like maxing out the exposure. We were in a nice, evenly lit, you know, l- l- gorgeous looking kitchen. Um, I think the the reason I went for the MX was, was a because the producer said, "Oh, by the way, you're shooting this." I said, "Oh, okay, thanks very much. Thanks for letting me know." And uh, it was pretty simple. I don't mind shooting stuff myself when it's uh, you know it's not I'm not shooting you know Good Morning Vietnam two. I'm just shooting something fairly simple, um, I and, I really, and I really and I really wanted. To, oh, I think it was too. really. I was really really happy with the way it looked. It looked fantastic. I mean, I had I knew the location uh, is going to have these blown out windows in the background, and I knew I was going to have a little bit of lack of control of light. Uh, and I knew I wanted to. I didn't really have tons of firepower to be able to counteract it. So I went with MX to just give me a little bit more latitude and blown out windows and stuff. But, uh, you know, to be honest, without side-by-siding it with a non-MX camera, it's a little bit hard to tell because the builds have gone so fantastic now in the non-MX cameras. They still look great. I'm interested to see whether there was any... Well, as we were discussing in the Red Course 210 at FXPHD, we've been doing a lot of work on exposure and latitude because, you know, there was a blow-up between ARRI and Red at NAB over whether you should use a teacup about... Well, actually, dynamic no, range I'm, no, versus I'm coming down uh, heavily latitude. on the side of not a storm in a teacup. Okay. Actually, I'm coming down right. on the actually get your facts right kind okay. of. Not you, but I mean, yep, I think yep, people yep, should yep. use the right terms. This was uh, basically over, should we be saying dynamic range versus latitude? Yeah, I use the term exposure latitude because it, it makes it a little less confrontational. But the, 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 if you guys didn't pick up on this, what happened was that dynamic range is, you know, if you had a test device and and we actually researched this and there's a great guy who helped me out who did a bunch of testing um and i'm gonna look up his name as i'm speaking but in greece actually he's a camera uh guy right um but uh so what happens is you you basically expose um the camera at a range of exposures and we were covering this as i say in fxphd and then you look at the noise and you look at the noise floor um in all three color channels as you step down through uh, the exposure range and you get a 
dynamic range, which is the the exposures that are basically readable. And the dynamic range of a camera is scene independent. Um, you have exposure latitude that is scene dependent. It's like, and you you are concerned about what the exposure is inside a shot, of course, um, between the darks and the lights and yeah. stuff. But what you're basically doing is, can I grade for exposure latitude back down? So how many sort of stops off this midpoint? So when we've been rating cameras in the past, certainly with the red one, we, that way we, we focus on that because we thought that was kind of yeah. more important. If I'm a stop over or stop under or two or, or whatever, can I get it back to ground zero? Yeah. And so I showed all that in, uh, in this class, what, how much exposure latitude we had on the MX. Um, and interestingly, I did it in Flame and then we did it automatically in Red Cine X. And it was interesting to see how frigging well it worked up until it didn't work very well at all in, in Red Cine X. But anyway, versus Flame. Versus Flame, yeah. But um, I don't Meaning you had more control over in Red well, Cine yeah, X? No. no. What I was saying is that we did... There's automatic... Uh, okay, so let's say I've got an exposure of F8. Yeah. You want to know is if I go to 5.6 or to 11 or 16 or 22, whether I can get it can back I to look like eight. highlights or black spec? Yeah. So I'm saying in Red Cine, I can just punch a button that will give me one EV, one stop. So I'll say, bring my F22 yep. and ex- have the exposure of F8, and I can do that in stops. Because right. it actually has that, right? Right. As well as the flut control, which is sub-stop sure. control. Yep. Right, yeah. You, you, have a, you have a physical way to be able to determine what a stop is yeah. in the electronic world and after not only the that, lens has been packed But away. it does it properly because they wrote the code really well. Right. It does it properly. In flame. Until, no, in, in, in Red City. In Red City. Until right. it doesn't, in which case it suddenly doesn't look very... It, it skews. Right. It's, it's a long story. You'd have yeah. to see the frames. Sure. I don't mean this to be a half-hour discussion. So anyway, I, in Flame, I have full control, right? But I don't have, obviously, control of the R3D files for stepping in exposure stops the way that the red guys wrote. But I have, obviously, full control to play with the file because it's a, you know, 16-bit file and I can play yeah. with it as much as I want. And yeah. so I can I-grade it back to match. If you're in DaVinci, right? Yeah. And you're a baselight. And I said to you, can you grade this stuff to match the DP is going to just play with the knobs and it's going to look and it's going to, you're going to then say, yes, that looks about the same and call it ticked. Yeah. But if you're in red, Cine X, and you said, can you get the F22 to look like F8? I could just press three buttons and it would go, didn't, right. and it would actually give you that. Now, whether it matched eyeball-wise was an interesting thing to look at. And in mm. most cases, unless you go to either end of the extremes, it matched frigging well, right. frighteningly well. Because it's actually, sim- it's, it's more complicated than you think. It's a 3D matrix problem. It's uh, yeah, I thought that. <laughs> it's mainly the uh, it's mainly the highlights. I think because I've never really seen any issues in the blacks. It's always been nice. I've never wor- no, 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 worried it's about totally the, uh, an issue in the blacks because of no, noise. No, sure, yeah, but I've never get, I've never got anywhere near you know needing to lift blacks that. Ba- I mean, just oh, okay. for my general right. work, I've never been able to go anywhere near dangerous. It's mainly those highlights and being able to expose for them and make sure that the windows blow out. If they are going to blow out, that they blow out the way film looks. They don't blow out the way. You know, video looks. I think we've gone beyond that, and I think you know, last few builds we've definitely. If you, if it's blowing out, it's looking wonderful and it's looking very, very, very filmic. It's not an issue. It's just knowing that when I'm exposing it, that I've got uh, the control over those highlights, and and I guess no, knowing what to trust because you've got the goalposts, you've got the traffic lights, you've got the histogram, and then you've also got what's on on screen. Um, so it was a little bit of battle of what do I trust and, and what do I go with and just look, go with what eventually what I did was just trust the gut and go with what looked great. The 
Um, well, here's some trivia about the camera that you may or may not know. You would know this because you're a bright guy. But for a start, a lot of people thought that the size of the chip between the MX and M and it changed so that like the actual right. density had changed no the pixels are the same size right in terms of pixel pitch in terms of pixel area like yep. in terms of number of photons light collecting, hitting that, so light collecting so that's, secondly, real estate secondly the MX has no greater sensitivity than the M okay yeah I know you're rolling your eyes okay so what what it is is this okay. and I explain this the native the, sensitivity must be different it's identical okay why is it the same, you say? Because the, it, there's only so many photons. No, 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 into, no, no, no. No, because no, 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 no. it's how it deals with those. And no, no, it's it nothing to do with that. No, no, look, okay. it's simple. It's, simple. it's right, just go the, ahead. Okay, so... Hit me. So we rate... So you, you would, your answer to me should be, shut the fuck up, because one of them is 800 ISO and one of them is 320, right? Yeah. To which I come back with, no, even Jim pointed out that actually you could rate the MX at 320, but yep. the point of rating it at 800... Which is what I did, or thereabouts. And, okay, so what they've done is that if you set your camera to 800 and you aim it at 18% grey, yep. and you get a light meter reading and stuff, and it'll all match up. Yep. That's yep. what you should do. But the geeky behind-the-scenes crap is that you can rate it at 800 because the noise floor is so clean. The key to the MX camera is its noise floor. It's just mm. so clean in its noise floor that in fact what would have been acceptable at 320 is sort of acceptable at 800. If you'd wound the M up to 800, mm. then it would be noisy and it wouldn't be acceptable. So the kind of noise level of cleanliness at 800 on an MX equals 320 on an M effectively. Yeah. And so what's happening is you're saying, okay, I can rate it 800 now and I can shoot it at 800. My 800 light meter, it'll all work. Um, and I could just as equally do it at 320 but the point is that because the noise floor is better, that's what's making the difference. And so if I was, was to lift it up and work with it, I have the latitude beneath me that 800 would imply, and it's mm-hmm. clean. And because it's clean, it looks like uh, I can see into the darks better because the darks don't get muddied by noise. Otherwise, you'd say I couldn't see into the darks because they get all noisy and they're no use. Yeah, so it's not so... It's a, I guess the extra latitude that we're seeing, 30 and a half stops, whatever they say. Sorry, latitude or dynamic, dynamic range. range. Thank you very much. The, that is more because the bottom end's been extended, not so much because of the highlights or how, it more, how much more latitude you've got in hot windows, say, to expose them two, three stops over versus one that you use. Yeah, if you were writing the Academy Award submission for the technical oscar for the yep. mx chip yep and you had an audience that the oscar community hopefully is it's just very technically literate yes you would focus on the noise floor as the technical innovation that yep. red has pulled off to go between the m and the mx which yeah. then in turn lets you rate it at 800 which let in turn lets you go up into higher no isos and shoot sensibly between 200 and right. you know because interestingly pulling the footage into red cine X, just to have a look at my hot stuff yeah. and what's blown out I wasn't seeing an absolute ton of great ability. I was seeing a bit, but not you know not not wildly stops and stops into the hot stuff, which could be pulled back. The stuff that was still hot and blown out was still hot and blown out. Yeah. So and, what I was and the second sorry go on. yeah. So there wasn't tons of, of latitude. That's very observant that of you. The second thing is that they improve, and I think I said this in the interview with uh, Ted on FX Guy TV, the second thing is they've improved the IR filters. Now, this is really important because if you're going to rate the darn camera at 800, yep. you're going to stick a lot more NDs in front of it. You're going to stick a lot more NDs in front of it. You're much quicker going to stack up and find the problem of the yeah. ND filter uh, 
bug thing from the pollution. end. Yeah, exactly. Cleaned up. So yep. they, the second innovation that is really tangibly different between the MX chip and the M is the IR filters at the front. Right. So you don't have contamination, which you'll so need you to do because you're going to be stacking more I mean, we more used IRs. hot mirrors anyway. Um, but Hot mirrors? Well, you know, the hot mirror, the infrared um, NDs. Oh, infrared, the clever NDs? Yep. Yeah, the clever NDs. Thanks. The, um, no, no. The, but I guess theoretically that lessens the need for them. Or I wonder if they're. Say, I wonder if Fred's saying we still should use hot mirror NDs or not. Actually, we got some test footage came in yesterday. I can show you that after this. We'll okay. talk about that next week. Yeah. Um, cool. Because this is. Well, we use them anyway because it doesn't make any difference. They don't doesn't make any difference. They don't look but any different. You can definitely. You will be stacking up more NDs. Yep. And uh, you can rate it at eight hundred. You are, but of course, if they hadn't fixed the IR filter, there would be quickly a problem which mm-hmm. it isn't yeah okay so all right well look i'm um, so the whole exposure thing is still a little bit sort of gray to me i'm definitely going to do a little bit more research oh, because after my explanation no no still no, no just because there's five things to, to to think about what i'm seeing on the monitor and am i trusting the peak points of the uh you know the, the red little rising bar graphs of the uh goalpost left and right of the histogram the histogram looks great and there wasn't much peaking yet i was having the traffic lights were saying you're peaking yet and i could definitely see some you know what what are we calling peaking is it a percentage of the frame or is it you know I mean, I guess that the main thing to trust, or apart from just looking on those fabulous, nice, those Panasonic 17-inch monitors, which I just love on set, um, is to trust the um, uh, false color, which I, to be honest, couldn't actually, never bothered to switch on or could never remember. You or, haven't bothered to switch on or you I didn't, generally didn't I didn't switch on. it on. We just, um, the two, the two, um, the two soft switches were just assigned to be, um, uh, focus zoom, um, focus magnification, and uh, I think there was just changing the uh, red stroke raw, uh, red space stroke uh, raw, just changing the color space. But, uh, you know, what was terrific at least was was that I could have a fantastic image. What was fantastic, I think, at the end of the day was what I saw in the viewfinder or what I saw on the monitor on set looks exactly like what I saw in Rush's looks exactly what I saw on Final Cut and in the Avid, looks exactly what I saw on Red Cine X, and looks exactly what it looks like in the monitors out in Video Village. No more are we seeing five different versions of things and something that looks flat as a shit carter's hat and has to be wound up in the contrast for Video Village. And, you know, the rushes look completely different to what I've seen on set, and, you know, there's five different versions of the look. I must say it was absolutely rock-solid, cons- totally consistent, even in the compressed... Um, uh, proxies um, on, on the final cut. Everything looked exactly the same, which was great. Once you've got the look that you like, it was all the way through the chain. Uh, have yet to do the grading on this footage, but that'll by next step I would have done that, and I'll sort of have a bit more in, uh, feedback on the grading side of things. But uh, actually, I think there was one tiny little hiccup uh, because I'm shooting the. Uh, beta build whatever the latest 30 whatever the latest beta build your machine is on mike mm. um that for some reason first up all the proxies or pulling up the footage on my uh, laptop just at lunchtime to have a look at it did you have the right had a look and completely green and horribly washed out and awful looked like a sickly um murky swamp green uh was that i did not have the beta version of the quicktime codex i think now, I'm going to put a link into the show notes to those as well, not that people can't, can't um, find them themselves, can but I, uh, that was a little gotcha for me. And can I, can I also put a link in the show notes for um, 
Evangelos, who's the uh, Greek um, uh, sort of, he's like a, uh, I guess he's a TD who um, works mainly in um, in uh, Europe, who did the testing for us with right. um, the uh, chips and stuff, and okay. gave us a lot of the charts. Because I have seen some of the stuff he's done. Yes, before. his surname. I'm not going to say nope. properly. Going to spell it. A C H I P Shush O U L O S Achilopoulos. Anyway, he's no seriously. He's a really nice guy, and um, he's, terrific. He gave us um, such generous uh, support with uh, letting him reprint stuff of his okay um, but so now is that a link to his stuff that he's done or can we show some some screenshots or is it uh, is there a course people can take or somewhere they can go to start seeing some of this stuff uh well the serious testing stuff we didn't even get into he, I, I will put a link into his stuff and to get to him but okay. he's his latitude test i'm going to show it to jace as we're speaking and jace's yeah. eyes are going to roll back his head you probably are, but he's done a recent. I've, more seen, recent the, I've seen this older version. Though, yeah, he's done a more recent version, and he's going to be testing the MX uh, soon. But he didn't just test the red; he tested um, the Vericam and the right Cine Alter and the Excellent. Genesis. But anyway, he tested the five um, D as well. But it was just the his his proper step chart analysis of the um, exposure range, which of course then leads to the pixel noise. And then if you do a log of the pixel noise, you can actually start seeing stuff, which validates a lot of things we've often said for example like there's more noise in the blue channel of the m um but uh, it's the point at which you know you get noise intolerable that defines when you, you need to stop but so theoretically then probably for my shoot what was applicable for my shoot i probably ne- didn't necessarily need to go to the mx because the the value in the chip isn't necessarily necessarily in that high stuff if i was out there shooting you know no, the, a the hobo MX is documentary an no, under, no, under sodium vapors. No, don't, don't take that out as the takeout. Okay. No, just that. Well, because you rate it the way you do, you yeah. have. Look, it's increased its dynamic range. Yep. It has good exposure latitude, and you can rate it at eight hundred. So obviously, there are advantages um, at being on a more sensitive stock in the way that if you were shooting at five hundred ISO film stock, yeah, five hundred D over two and fifty D, but it's not. That is not a result of the chip itself being a different density of pixel sites or yep. B, being inherently more sensitive. Though that isn't a bad way to think of it, but technically speaking, uh, that isn't how it works. My takeout then is that the call the MX your fast stock and that the camera to use if you are heading out into low light situations and you're pushing it for ISO and you don't want to get, you know, and you know you're going to be struggling for, for gain and or, you know, wanting to maybe push things a little bit in, in, yeah, in grade. Yeah, because it's going to be a really clean, low noise solution. Yeah. And, and also, sorry, the other, but, but don't forget also you get some other improvements like that IR filter. It's not just that. Sure. But if you're essentially just shooting what I was doing, which is, you know, a guy in a kitchen with sunlight and you're using hot mirror filters, then not so much of a, a, a plus, maybe. Unless you really wanted to go for some extra dynamic range. Yeah. But yeah, no. I mean, look, there's True. nothing, let's face it, there's nothing wrong with shooting on an AM. I'd be interested to see that, I mean, we've, si- we've seen these side-by-sides in the dark stuff, and we talked about the other day when we did the ACS night. We could definitely see some fantastic, amazing, stunning difference between the two chips in the low-light stuff. But I'm just interested to see side-by-side of blown-out highlights and blown-out windows, MX, non-MX, be good to see, you know, was there an advantage we to... Uh, that not that I didn't love you, shooting with the, your fabulous number 22, but it'd be interesting to know what it's the plus good. is. All good. Um, there also was a bug um, that uh, we're still investigating with shooting in 25 
frames a second off speed, but we'll get back yeah, to that next yeah, week. I we knew, yeah, Jim that. warned me about that. I knew I didn't need to shoot off speed, which is another issue. I think there's some issue. If you shoot 30 frames, you're not actually shooting 30, or there's no time code in 30. We'll get back to that when okay. we know exactly what that okay. is. Okay, shutting up. No, no. Um, okay. And so for a show that we didn't have anything to talk about, we're, at, uh, <laughs> we're very long. Yeah. But uh, we apologise. We thank you guys for bearing with us. We have my only, my only statement, I guess, that I would say about this um, is that when we rat hole, we at least rat hole on serious industry stuff most of the time. We stick with rats. We don't go off doing badger holes or whatever. Yeah, there you yeah. go. I was wondering where you were going with that, but I can I see it. still don't know where I was going with that, but anyway. So we, we have taken upon ourselves at the end of each episode, at the end of each one of these, to to turn our attention, the media spotlight, as it were. Oh, I've got still things you haven't covered. Yeah, I've still, still got gear I haven't covered, but hey. Do you want to do that? All right, do quick gear, and then we'll... Okay, on, two things. All right, I won't... I to again, to go, to the, go to the show notes for more in-depth on these things, but these are two things that I saw at... Uh, one I didn't see at NAB, one I did... Uh, first of all, is the uh, Nexto, uh, the DI video storage. Now, you probably know these Nexto things. They're like little sort of CF card backup, essentially, for stills. But what they've done is they've brought out a ruggedized uh, version of, of this, which essentially is reasonably expensive. Um, but what it does, it'll read CF cards, it'll read um, um, SD cards, XD cards, and it will read S by S cards. So obviously for elect coming Alexa, this is going to be fantastic. Now this is obviously an onset, if you have to, uh, quick rush backup uh, system. Obviously what they do is do a bit by bit comparison of the data to make sure before you pull that card out and you go and start erasing it on camera and shooting again, it makes sure that the, all the data is is completely uh, confidence checks the data as it copies it over. Um, what makes this one unique, it has a 2.4-inch color LCD, but it can actually do playback of uh, images and clips. And one thing that they're working on with RED, hopefully, is to actually have RED playback, to have play, be able to playback R3Ds um, on this. So essentially it's a ruggedized 500-gigabyte, 7200-RPM drive with a color LCD to check back your clips with hopefully RED playback. Uh, and the ability to have S by S cards as well on board. So, and it's got an eSATA port on the bottom. Uh, the other thing it, interesting that it does is that it has a USB port. You can then plug in a um, uh, external USB drive, and it will actually then do a concurrent backup without any laptops involved. So you can essentially have this thing and an external USB laptop, uh, an external USB drive rather, and it will uh, obviously copy the copy your cards, and then make a, another uh, another backup on another external drive. So obviously nothing really, if it's, unless it's in two places, nothing really can be treated to actually exist at all. So um, if you're out and about, this is a quick, cheap and cheerful in the backpack. I won't say cheap and cheerful, I'll back that up because of this, uh, before I go any further, I'll tell you this thing is $2,000, which I think is a little bit pricey. But um, so if I had a card reader on a laptop, <sighs> I knew you were going to say this. <clears throat> on that, a, a card reader on an iPad, the camera con- the camera converter, the USB camera converter, camera adapter on the iPad, then you could update. I mean, the inherent problem with a device like this um, is that it works really, really well. It's really ruggedized and it's very professional. But if you are not in the bracket of having dedicated professional gear. 
they have to basically build a computer and they're not going to build 100 million of them. Yeah. So they're competing with the guy at <clears throat> Apple who designed something that is going to be producing sure. literally a million of them and gets I the production costs down. I think they need to look at the price, definitely. Uh, definitely. This but, you know, if, you were, you... if your livelihood was doing this work, then... Yeah. But... Well, I w- those little... If you're, you know, hiking up whatever the mountain and you are literally just got your red you one and try... Your... Your laptop with you. Exactly. You want to yeah. chuck something in your backpack. I mean, obviously, you take more CF cards, but to be able to, while you're up there, double-check that it's, you know, sure. it's all good. Um, I like the other one that you've got. And we're running out of time, but I, yeah, okay. I really like your the, basketball with shopping uh, The air floater. Again, you're going to tell me, why don't we just... Yeah, but why don't you just have a basketball? We've talked about sort of handheld... The, the handheld look and uh, how we've, how I've got it before on set just by you know, the tennis ball or the walk cam where you're putting the camera essentially on a, on a dome walk. This is, I guess, is the more controlled on-set version of this. It's called Air Floater. You go to airfloater.com. And this uh, is just coming out in the last few months, and it was at NAB, and I'm sorry I missed it, but it's a, a I guess the, the the inherent the tech underlying it is uh, what looks like uh, if you've ever seen the airbags on the bottom of a, a car tracking vehicle uh, or um, a truck airbags for for a delicate freight. This looks like an automotive airbag, essentially sandwiched between a um, 100 mil or 150 mil bowl and a Ronford plate on the top. So essentially you can put a really big, you know, load it up, put an F, F-35 with a big... Uh, that's one question I'm yet to find out. Okay. I couldn't get... I couldn't... Could not find out the price. Um, but essentially, it, it, yeah, it's essentially it's a big airbag, uh, but with like essentially stabilizing struts on either side to uh, either damp it and or lock it in position. Um, but if you go to airfloater.com, there's some fantastic demo videos literally showing how it works and you can get that handheld feel or close to the handheld feel, but have it reasonably controlled. So you can actually, unlike the walk cam or the the baseball, the soft, the um, tennis ball under the camera, you know, you can't really just walk away from that stuff. You always have to have a grip or somebody ready to hang oh, on to it, and you can let go and then go do your meter reading. I'm, so I'm not for this, down is, this at all. I think no, it's, no it's, it's it's clever. There's a smaller like version. There's a there's a there's a large version. There's a couple of sizes. Uh, I'm sure it's not it's not going to be cheap, but uh, you know, if this is your shooting style and you do this all the time, it's fantastic. Or if you're a rental outfit, I reckon it'd be great to get a few of these, um, you know, into the rental market for sure. Um, but I like the idea that it's a con- it's that it's that very uh, unlocked feel, yet it's it's uh, controlled. You can literally walk away. You can lock it and walk it away. Um, or you don't need to have to constantly have your hand on it, and you can put a really big, you know, put a big uh, a big camera on this with a big lens, and still be able to, uh, as the videos show, go to airfloater.com and check them out. There, we did it. A Twitter shout out. I was going to say we do at the at this Last point night. in the show like to uh, um, draw our attention to turn our spotlight of media attention. On somebody that is uh, a particularly good member of the online community, and we choose for this to to use Twitter because it's just a good way of getting keeping up with what's Absolutely. going on. Absolutely, because they're a good. If you're on Twitter, if not, get onto it. It's a great industry source of this some seems to be info. a bit of a, like not a just a geek film fest. community yeah. group, isn't there? Like, there's well, I a, guess there's probably lots of communities that we don't evolve in in in, in Twitter. Maybe it just sure does seem to be that there's a. It started off as this sort of tech in in, in the more tech realm i guess and it seems to have stuck that way and there's a fantastic you know 
amount of people in in, in all manner of, of production fields. Um, Jason Diamond and Josh Diamond, um, two brothers who run MBS Productions and obviously who we met at NAB and are good friends of the show. We've had them on before. Oh, we've had Jason on before. And uh, they also, um, Jason presented at uh, part of the FX PhD And they featured in the Gigapan picture we did of the uh, crowd, but we didn't get to talk about the Gigapan. We'll no, we didn't. We'll do that next next week on, on, on gear and work out how we can do, as soon as you can work out how you can do some stop motion on it, I'm really cool. Um, so, yes. Stop motion, you just can't do repeatable passes. It's not a motion mm. control head. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's Jason Diamond and Josh Diamond on Twitter, twitter.com slash Jason Diamond. And, um, also at MBS Productions is their production company. Uh, yeah, they, uh, Jason was a guest on the post pit with you, Mike, talking about, uh, I think he was talking, uh, was he with the FX guide or maybe he's on a separate day? He, no, no, we had the morning session and then yep. the afternoon session. He was uh, in the afternoon session discussing indie, uh, production. Yeah. Uh, from a film that they had taken through from being, um, uh, camera support on set while filming around New York right through to doing the final post-production and uh, it was in cinemas in Los Angeles as we were, as yeah, we were there. Yeah, Exploding Girl. So um, I guess it's probably soon heading to uh, out to desk. So it was featured on the Apple website iTunes. and the, uh, in the you know, trailers section, which, okay, is, nice, for, right, which cool. is a much better place to watch it than on the crappy projection screen that we had at the post uh, pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Actually, if any of you managed to get to the post pit, Drop us a line. We would really um, like to hear from you. We, yeah, we was, found it really fun, didn't we? Yeah, it was terrific. Apart from the screen, the presentation screen made it really, really hard. But uh, it was really interesting. I had a bit, bit trepidatious heading into a live red center, and obviously, but but it was. Uh, a, a, very impressed with the turnout and that people actually stayed and watched. They didn't like just walk past, you know, chewing their hamburger and walk off. You know, it was, oh, there it was, was a huge was crowd. A, a we pulled the largest crowd. crowd that that had the entire NAB. Um, wow, with with Ted. Yeah, the, that, that afternoon probably. session started. It yeah. was it was pretty. Uh, no, it was terrific. You, if you published some photos in the show notes. Oh yes, I shall. I shall add those. And to the we show gave notes. away our awesome FX guide. You really need them on set hats. You did. Which you know what we should uh, we should do another. Uh, let's starting next week. We'll do another quiz and give away some FX guide. You really need one of these geeky hats on set hats, which you have to admit were popular. Oh, uh, hugely popular. But you knew it would be so. Um, Vegas being the, the, the excellent place for that kind of thing. We had a lot of fun with those uh, light up LED hats uh, all the way through Vegas. It was quite hysterical. So uh, yeah, again, if you came to Post Pit, let us know. It'd be good to know uh, what it was like from your side of the the stage so uh, as always we are hopeless at staying to time um, and we apologise profusely yes, but uh, thank you so much for listening uh, of course you can find the show notes at fxguide.com up the top there's a podcasting section under which you'll find uh, all the information about all of the podcasts that we have available for you which of course range uh, in subjects from the uh, this one which is of course the FX uh, look at digital cinematography right through to our Spanish versions of FX Guide TV, our other FX Guide TV, and, of course, the VFX show. Um, that's all at fxguide.com. And you are on Twitter, Mike. Where can people Mike find Seymour. you? Mike Seymour. Right. And I am uh, twitter.com. Can I do something else that's really shamelessly horrible? Yeah. If I, you guys I, are I really well. enjoying the show, drop over to iTunes and uh, register in the... Um, you know, stars. Do you yeah, like actually, particularly if it's for Australians, I, I think that there's not an awful lot of comments there. I mean, the, the comments are fa- that are there are fantastic, and we really appreciate them. But yeah, hit us up in the uh, iTunes uh, site and head off and just 
give us a bit of a review. It would be fantastic. Thank Red Centre, spelt the Australian way, R-E-D-C-E-N-T-R-E, if you're doing a search in iTunes. But you probably know that because you're probably already there and you're, you're already probably there. already downloading. Yeah. And, and we've got 29 ratings, Jace, as we record this. Excellent. Um, throw down to our peeps if you guys can uh, pump us, us. 50 by next step. There you go. And then we'll give away more hats. Okay. We'll grab a hat for every 10 over 50. How's that? Whoa. All okay. right. I have a few hats. Thank you. Uh, and also, oh, you've done your website. I'll plug mine, jasonwingrove.com. Uh, I'll try to keep that update with my latest uh, equipment, and uh, my gear rather, and my uh, reel. Um, I have a stopwatch and a passport and an eye and a brain, and I can be in your part of the world in about 12 hours. Hey, um, speaking of which, on your Twitter file, which is Wingrove, just yes. at Wingrove, um, you changed your picture. I did change you my picture. All, you have a real... Yeah, Someone took from, a photo of me on set yeah, the nice other photo. day with your camera. Nice and, uh, it's amazing how prof- much more professional I look rather than sticking a stills camera out of a... I had, I had liked that previous picture, but I think this one is better. Yeah, it's good to have it. I don't think I'd change that picture for um, a couple of years. A change is good as a holiday. I feel quite refreshed having done so. Yes, excellent. All right, well, if you've liked any of this and uh, would like us to... Uh, Pick up on any other aspects, please. Uh, don't hesitate to... Yeah, please uh, do. We love all the comments. comments. We do try to reply to uh, everyone that emails. We appreciate it. We get a lot of really good emails, don't we? Yep, we do, indeed. And There's the email address... smarter people, to... people out there than us. Yeah, no, totally. The email address that people can contact us at? It is uh, red at fxguide.com. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.